Okay, well, thank you very much. It's really great to be here. What a privilege to speak today. So we're going to, like Simon said, continue out of Exodus. We're looking at Exodus 14 today. This is possibly the most famous part of the whole getting out story uh, of Israel getting out of Egypt. And obviously, just to say, if you were here a week or so ago, uh, Andrew talked about, obviously, as the people come out, it's not just Israelites coming out, it's some Egyptians as well. So it's a mixed group. But for today, I'm just going to refer to them to, as the Israelites, because that's what you get in the passage. And uh, if you've got a Bible, turn to 14. We're going to read from verse 5. And if you haven't got a Bible, don't worry, it's going to come up on the screen. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. And said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haharoth opposite Baal-Siphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to, desert, to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of the Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered, Notice, Do not be afraid, stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Egyptians can go through the sea on dry land. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. I'm going to jump now, actually just down to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into the dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and the chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now, that's a long passage, but so much of the detail in this passage is there specifically to tell us something. So when you read bits of the Bible and you kind of go, that's weird, that's probably a good note. Like, why is that happening? That's a good note, because maybe there's something particular that God wants to speak to us about. Now, 
you'll know, hopefully, if you've been around us at all, we've been in this series, that stories like this in the Old Testament tend to work at a number of levels all at the same time. In one sense, you've got the storyline itself. Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. Now God gets them out through a deliverer out of Egypt through a number of plagues and out through the Red Sea into on a journey towards the Promised Land. So you've got that level. This story, however, foreshadows a much greater story because really this story is about Jesus, the great deliverer who is going to come and win and free men and women out of slavery to sin and addictive habits, out of destructive lifestyles, back through judgment, through potential judgment and death, into life and into a new life with God, the way it was meant to be. So you've got this foreshadowing of a much bigger story, a much bigger backdrop. And obviously, therefore, it speaks to us also, where we are today on our journey. And obviously, we're believing, aren't we, as we look at a passage that God is going to speak to us. So it's a story of amazing deliverance. But the thing I want us to look at today, really, is not just the deliverance itself, but it's how they get out. The manner in which they go from being slaves with water ahead of them and a, and a slave master coming after them, into freedom and out of reach of Pharaoh, the other side of the water. So I want us to begin by looking at verse 5. We're just going to pick some verses, and I believe God's going to speak to us as we do. So verse 5 says this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people have fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites. Now back in Exodus chapter 12, what we're told is Pharaoh releases Israel and says, get out, you can go. So he releases them. But now in Exodus 14, he changes his mind and he's pursuing them again. So they've been released, they've been freed, but now their old master is pursuing them again. Pharaoh comes after them to try and drag them back into bondage again. In other words, they've been freed, but they're not yet free. Now, this should sound familiar to us. Does this sound familiar to you? Because this is what we experience if you're a Christian here, not everybody in this room will be a Christian yet. And if you're not, you're very welcome to be here and wonder about faith. We love having you in the room. But if you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, the Bible says, you were freed immediately, forgiven uh, the, the legal charge against you in terms of you being under judgment was dropped, paid for because Jesus took that cost for you and you were free. And that's why it says in Romans 8, therefore there's no now, no condemnation. You're not under judgment anymore. You're freed legally. So I've been freed. And yet from that moment on, you start to live out your Christian life. What you find is at times you feel the pull back into your old life back into old sinful habits, back into maybe old religious ways of thinking that were never any good and never brought you any joy anyway, and you feel the drag back or, or the, the enslavement of certain ways of thinking that you were under, and you've been freed, but your experience is there are certain aspects of your life that you are not yet free. That's why in Romans 6, Paul writes about this. He says, my paraphrase, you're no longer under law. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You've been freed. But then he says, but don't sin. Don't let sin it reign in your body anymore. In other words, he's saying, look, it's possible to be freed, but not yet be living free. Now, how do we do it? How do we handle it as a Christian when you've been freed, 
You've come to faith, but you're not yet out and living free. How do we get free? Well, this story has quite a lot, I think, to help us. Because if you know the story, and we've read it, what happens is eventually the Israelites get out, across through the waters, onto the other side, away out of the reach of their old master. I'm not trying to say that you are Pharaoh over here, but for the sake of this moment, they get out, out of the reach of Pharaoh. How do they do it? Well, let's look at a few things. Verse 10, Pharaoh approaches the Israelites, they looked up, and there the Egyptians were marching towards them. They were terrified, and they cried out. It's an important phrase. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses doesn't answer them in the sense of doesn't respond to them, but goes this. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now, just as an aside, interestingly, when you read back, there is no account of the Israelites saying, we want to stay in Egypt. You know, when Moses turns up, he doesn't get there and go, no, we're having such a good time in Egypt. It's, it's fulfilling all our dreams. Our life is flourishing. We feel really good about our lives. There's no account of that. In fact, if you read back in Exodus 3, God says to Moses, I've heard my people cry out, which is the same phrase as you see here, that people cried out. And yet when God talks about it, I've heard them cry out about their misery and their suffering. So the Israelites are reflecting on their old life in a way which is completely unreal. That Egypt was great. Actually, it wasn't great at all. That's the reason they wanted to get out. And sometimes as a Christian, you can almost look back on your old life and you can forget how destructive and enslaving it was. And you forget how bad it was and how, how unhealthy it felt and how what, it never delivered to you what you wanted. Sin never delivers as advertised, by the way, folks. It, we sin because it promises us something. And then you sin, you step into it, hoping you're going to get what you want, and you find it doesn't deliver as advertised. And that's what they're reflecting on. They're thinking, oh, but it's not real. Now, particularly, I want you to see this. How does Moses answer them? He says this, be still, stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That's a fascinating response, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever been threatened or felt in a scenario where you feel threatened, either by something or someone, right? When you feel threatened, generally you don't want to stand still, right? You either want to, like, engage, I'm going to go into it, or I'm going to get out of it, Right? So I was thinking about a moment, a time when Sarah and I, my wife Sarah, before we ever had kids, we were on a holiday. We'd gone cycling for a week in France. And um, one day I decided we're going to cut this corner and go on this kind of very rural route, you know, up into the hills, okay, which is all very nice. The problem with really rural routes in France is that you go near French farms. And the problem with French farms, apologies if you're French, and if you're a French farmer, is they have French farm dogs, and French farm dogs are generally demonic. I don't know if you've ever known that, okay? <laughs> Mark 5, Jesus casts out the demons out of Legion. They go into the pigs. Some of them got into France, <laughs> into these dogs, right? And we're cycling, and we hear these dogs. And there's an entire herd of dogs. No, no. There's two or three. There's three dogs, okay? And they're, they're running parallel to us, and we're cycling. I'm like, <gasps> and then I see them coming down this track towards us, and they're foaming, rabid, demonic dogs, red eyes, Okay? 
And I tell them, no, I don't. Right, so they're running towards me in the name of Jesus. Okay, and, and I'm like, huh? what do we do? What do we do? Well, I'm not standing still at that point, folks, okay? I decide I'm going to do the only manly thing possible and cycle as fast as I can, right? Which is a great plan, but I forgot to tell Sarah. And so she stops, I cycle, I draw the dogs off, is the way I wanted to talk about it. I drew the dogs off. Okay, and they cycle after me, they're trying to eat me, okay? Jumping up at me, it was really scary. And it has left me with a bit of a thing about French farm dogs, as you can tell. And I got like about 100, 150 metres down the lane from her. And then Sarah's stuck up here, which was not such a good plan because the demonic dogs are between us. Okay, and then we go through this thing where I'm shouting, you just got to cycle really fast through them. And about five minutes later, she comes through shouting at these dogs as well. So it was horrible. Now, when the dogs are coming for you, you don't want to stand still. Now, the Egyptians are coming for them. The dogs are coming. And Moses says, do you know what you need to do? You need to stand still. Israel are cornered, slavery behind them, death and judgment ahead of them in the water. There is no way out. And that is a picture of you before you come to Jesus because we are ensnared. Slavery behind us, death and judgment over us and ahead of us, and there is no way through. And you look at this story and you think, God, why did you design? I mean, it even says in this story that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh to come after Israel. You think, after all the plagues... You've done all this hard work, God, to get Israel out there, finally out. And now you go, let's get Pharaoh to go after them. Why? What is God doing? He's deliberately designing a situation in which there is no way out. That Israel are completely incapable of freeing themselves. Nothing they can do that is going to get them out. Slavery behind, death ahead. The only way they get out is if the Lord fights for them. That's the only way out. And that's why he designs it that way. Trapped under judgment, be still. See, the only way we get out, 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 from being free to being free, is if another one fights for you. You don't get out by being impressive. You don't get out of sin by, by your own obedience. You don't get out because of your heritage. You, you just don't get out that way. The only way you get out is because there is one who fights on your behalf. And you receive it by just all by grace. It's all grace. It's all unmerited kindness. It's all undeserved mercy. And that's why when Moses says... So significant. He says, be still and watch how God is going to fight for you. That is so powerful because when you're still and the dogs are coming for you, if you get out, you only get out because someone else intervenes for you. Don't try and add to it. Don't try and mingle faith with your own obedience. Don't try and prove yourself to God. You don't get out that way. You just slip back into slavery that way. That's just called legalism. The entire book of Galatians is for people who have been freed, who are not free, who have mixed faith with their own activity, hoping that will appease God, and they have slipped, without knowing, back into slavery. And the whole book is written, you don't know, no, no, that's not how you get out. You get out simply by grace. And grace leads you into freedom and being saying no to sin. But being saying no to sin, you'll never do that, and you'll never get out of slavery by your own means. You only get out by grace because there's another one who fights for you. It's the only way you get out. It's very 
powerful. Now, verse 21, to add to that. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into a dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued it. All the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariots so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them. Now, one commentator I, wrote, I was reading says this. What, two sets of people go in. The Israelites go in and the Egyptians go in. Okay? Why did the Israelites get out and the Egyptians not? See, we tend to think it's because, well, the Israelites were the goodies and the Egyptians were the baddies. But they're, they're not, the Israelites are not the goodies in this story. Okay, they moan, they complain, they doubt. If you read the story on, they make their own idols. They're not a pleasant bunch of people. They don't get through because of any particular obedience or faith. In fact, they don't even have the law yet. That comes in Exodus 20 at Sinai. So they don't even know what obedience looks like. They don't get through because of some great obedience on their heart. What is the difference? How, why did Israel get through and Egypt not? The only reason is this. Israel get through because they have a mediator who stands in the gap for them who opens up a path for them to get through. They only get through. It is nothing to do with them. It is because they have a mediator who stands for them. Let me show you what I mean. Moses, in this story, both represents the people and represents God. Moses, before God, represents the people. God holds Moses accountable and as a representative of the entire people, But Moses also represents God to the people. He is fully identified with God the Father and fully identified with the people. Let me show you. Verse 10, we are told that the people cry out or moan. Right? They moan. Moses says, be still. That's all we read. Okay? Verse 15, did you notice what God says to Moses? You notice? God says to Moses, stop crying out. I read that and I thought, that's so unfair. Hold on, he didn't cry out. He said to people, be still. He he did really well. And yet, God, you're going, stop moaning, Moses. Moses didn't moan at all. What's going on? What's going on is God is holding Moses accountable for the sins of all the people. He is held as responsible and identified with the people. So anything they do wrong, he is held accountable for. And that's why God looks at Moses and says, stop crying out. Tell them to move on. So God is identifying Moses with all the collective sins that he's representing the people to God. Notice this, however. He also identifies with God and represents God to the people. Verse 21. Moses, we're told, stretches out his hand. The waters divide. And then we read that all through the night, God drives the waters back. Uh, Exodus 3. God is, we're told, is going to rescue Israel. And yet at the same time, we're told that God is sending Moses to bring the people out. In other words... Moses is seen as identifying or representing God to the people. And that's why often it's interchangeable as to who is the agent of change in this story. Tim Keller, who's a well-known American pastor, writer, brilliant guy, says this about this passage. Here you have one man who is so identified with the Israelites that their guilt is upon him 
and a man so identified with God that his power is coming through him. A vehicle for God's saving power. See, Israel only get out of slavery. They only get free, not only freed, but free, out of slavery, a crossover, only by grace through one man who is a mediator who represents both the people of Israel and represents God. We have a mediator. It's just amazing. It's just, folks, it's not about you and it's not about me. We have a greater mediator, the true Moses, who's not just associated with us but becomes fully man, lives the lives that we could never live, but represents us, is treated as representing all of us and our sins are identified with him. So the Father treats him as responsible for my fallenness, for your fallenness, for my sin, for your... That's, he represents us. Yet he lives a perfect life that we could never live so that he can be God to us and he can open up the waters. In fact, he doesn't just divide the waters. He goes into the waters, takes the judgment that should be ours and our sins are treated as if his, and his righteousness are treated, is treated as if it's ours. And that is the only way you get through, through one man called Jesus. It's all by grace. It's all through Jesus. And he takes you through. And the only way you get freed and free is because we have one who acted on our behalf. So if you're tempted to ever slip back into like, ah, oh, faith, but also I need to do a bunch of stuff somehow to please God and appease him, you need to remember that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for me and you. And when we start living like that, it's like saying the cross just wasn't quite enough. Now, as we close, I want to just show you a few things. The water is really significant in the story. Okay, it's not just a geographical barrier, which obviously it was, but it's not just that. Water had significance, and it is very deliberately there that God takes them on this route and takes them through water. Now, if you know the Old Testament at all, or you know anything about the ancient world, water had meaning. Okay? So water, in one level, stood for like chaos and was threatening. So if you read Genesis, right at the start of creation, God brings creation out of the water. You know, the water's divided, the land, the, whole, the Spirit of God broods over the water and starts to bring creation out of chaos. So there was kind of like chaos and judgment about water and, and creation comes out of it. If you know when, in the story of Noah, how does God, how does God judge the world? He, he floods it. I guess he could have judged it in so many ways, but he floods the world. So God judges the world through water. So here when they pass through the Red Sea, the walls of water, if you like, on the left and on the right, are a picture of death and of judgment. In other words, as they cross over, as they get through, as they get, things have to die in the water in order to get over. All right, let me tell you a few things that die in the water. First of all, this, I want to suggest human pride has to die in the water. If you're going to come to Jesus, human pride has to die because human pride is so often at the root of our own sinfulness and rebellion. Adam sins, doesn't he, in the Garden of Eden because he basically doesn't believe God and decides he wants to do things his own way. Do you know, God, I'm going to actually decide for myself what's good and bad, whether I can eat this fruit or not. That's what we do. I'll decide, God, what I'll do with my sexuality. Thank you very much. I'll decide who I date, who I don't date. I'll decide what I do with my money. I'll draw the lines out where I think it's appropriate. So I, I like the idea of God, but I actually I don't really want you to be God. I want to be God. And right at the root of that 
is pride and it gives birth to sin. That's what we do. Or it gives birth to just religious legalism. Yeah, I I acknowledge you as God, but actually, Jesus, I'm not sure that your sacrifice was fully sufficient for me, so I'm going to add all these things on that if I do them, maybe I'll just appease you. And it gives birth to legalism, which is where you get the story that Jesus tells of two sons, a younger and a broader. Our younger one runs away into rebellion. The old one stays close in religious legalism. Either way, you're in slavery again. And you get dragged back into slavery. That's what's happening. The old slave master comes after you. You get dragged back in. When you pass through the waters, what you're saying is, God, you know what? I could never get out. I was broken. My life didn't work. Sin never gave me what I wanted. Whatever I tried to do with my life, however I tried to fix it, it didn't fix it. My soul never felt full. I never felt joy. I never felt released. I never felt free. I could never break that old habitual pattern of behavior, which was so destructive to me. I couldn't get out. And yet somehow you got me out of slavery and through judgment and death, which was totally impenetrable. You got me through, not me. And therefore I admit, your God, I'm not. Pride dies in the water. If you're here and you're not a Christian, but you're pretty proud about how great you are, you're not going to get through the water. Okay, you have to first acknowledge, you know, I'm pretty broken and I'm not that great. It doesn't mean I'm useless and I don't have gifts. It just means, you know what, I can't fix the deepest issues in my life. Pride has to die in the water and you're going to get free. What else dies in the water? Fear has to die in the water. So often the root of any kind of slavery is fear for us. We get ensnared to things because we're fearful. Let me give you an example. Okay? If I'm fearful about money, basically what I'm, and, and I'm fearful about provision, that I'm not going to have enough money, effectively what I'm saying to God is, I don't really trust you that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. So when Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first my kingdom and all these things will be given to you, Jesus is saying, you can trust me, do exactly what I say, and I will look after you. But I'm, kind of, I'm not sure I do trust you completely that you'll provide what I need. So I'm going to have Jesus, but I'm also going to, money's going to be really, I'm going to elevate money as well. And I'm, I'm going to have enough money. And I'm going to look to money to provide me with the security that I really want in my heart. And if that becomes, that becomes an idol for you, what happens is this. You start not to be able to be generous. You just, you can't really give money away. Or if you do, it's really hard. It's like, ugh. Uh, and you become potentially quite greedy, and money becomes a big deal, and you think about it all the time, you check your accounts all the time, you are envious of people who have more money than you because they appear to have more security than you, and it has become an idol for you and has enslaved you because it's forcing you to live a certain way that you don't really want to live, and the root of it all is fear. I don't really trust God that you will be all that you say you will be, and therefore I'm going to trust something else called money to give me the thing that I want, which is a bit of security. And so we become enslaved. But when the people cross over, when they get through, when you come through the waters, what you realize is, do you know what? There was this impossible situation. I had, I had slavery and a slave master here. Who, and that was my very identity. I've been there for hundreds of years. From birth, I was born into slavery. It was completely inescapable. And yet, I somehow escaped because of your grace and because of through Jesus. And then there was death and judgment. And he opens up a way, incredibly, completely impossibly, for me to pass through because he goes into the water on my behalf. 
And he gets me out into a new life, into new possibilities, into a day where one day I will go to be with him. And if he delivered me from an impossible situation like that, surely he will give me all the other things I need in my life. Because I have a deliverer. And that's what Romans 8 says. He who did not give up his own, spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also surely graciously give us all things? That's what that passage means. If he was prepared to do that, surely he's going to give me enough money and provision for what I need. So, I, so fear can die in the water because I can trust him to be everything he says he will be because he has just ultimately displayed that he is all that he says he will be. If God is prepared to do that, why would he not do all these other things? That's the economy of that verse. It's incredibly powerful. It's like explosive power, isn't it? If you're ensnared somewhere, I bet you underneath it there's fear. And fear dies because of faithfulness. It has to die in the water. Another thing that dies in the water. Death itself, the fear of death, the sting of death dies in the water. Israel's great enemy was Egypt. Okay, they'd been born in slavery. And you know, Egypt, they were slaves because Egypt was more powerful. And you know the reason they were more powerful? Because they had a great big army, which keeps getting mentioned in the passage, right? Again and again and again. It's all the chariots and the horsemen and the chariots. And like, why is he telling me enough? I understand there were lots of chariots in Egypt. Why? Because God is demonstrating I'm way more powerful than all that Egypt has. So all the chariots come, the 600 best chariots and all the other chariots, and they're riding in. Okay, and what happens? The Israelites go in the water, the Egyptians go in, all the horses go in, and all the chariots. The chariots were the symbol of Egypt's great power. Now notice what happens. The chariots get stuck in the river. The wheels get stuck. Literally, the wheels start to come off. And Moses says to the Israelites, see these Egyptians? You're never going to see them again. That's it. They're finished. Totally disarmed, completely destroyed. And what had appeared like and been like to them previously, a completely terrifying power, is now completely feeble. Colossians 2 says this. He forgave us our sins. He cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and he's disarmed the powers and authorities He has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It means this. Through the cross, because Jesus went into the waters of judgment for us, the devil and all demonic powers are totally disarmed. Okay, the one real power that Satan had over you was the true accusation that you were guilty. But because Jesus goes in the waters for you, your guilt is dealt with. In other words, his sting has been drawn. He has no weapon over you anymore. He takes the judgment which was yours. Therefore, I no longer need to be fearful. No fear of Satan. No fear of demonic powers. No fear even of death itself because the threat of death itself dies. It's defeated. Death becomes, for the believer, a doorway. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where is your sting? So when the Israelites looked at the water and knew the slave master is coming, they're looking and going, this looks like a tomb. This water looks like death itself. But yet what looked like death and what looked like a tomb becomes a place through it of new birth, new starts, new land. And what looked like death becomes life. Death 
gives birth to victory. Because the waters, you see, they stand for judgment and death, don't they? But they also stand for deliverance and new life. It's, amazing. it's like just amazingly good news. If you're sitting here thinking, is this really, can this really be? Yes, that's what's so good about it. The waters stand for life and deliverance. Noah is delivered through the water into a new world. Moses escapes as a baby, doesn't he, in a basket through water. Joshua, later on, will deliver the people through the Jordan into the promised land. And here, God says to Moses, stretch out your hand and divide the waters, okay? That phrase, divide the waters, is the same as you get in Genesis, where God creates the world and divides the land from the water. That moment there is where new creation is happening. Now, this moment here, the waters are opening, same phrase. It's as if someone wrote this, isn't it? Maybe meant this to be that we understood this. Into a new life, into a new land, away, out of slavery, away from the sinful master, away from the one who used to have a hold on you. You can get free, free. Not just free, but completely free. Out. Because there's a new land, a new life opening. And get this as well. This is what's so incredibly powerful. At this point, from this point onwards in the story, we may well see this as the series goes on. They start to take on a new identity. Previously, Israel were not Israel as a nation. But now they begin a journey into not just a promised land further down the line, but to begin to become a new nation. When you've been under slavery for 400 years, it's not, slavery is not just something you do. It's something that you are. You're born into being a slave. You are a slave. And when the sinful slave master comes after you, it's difficult to resist him because that's still your identity. But now, you're over the other side. I don't belong to him anymore. He's not my master. I've got a new identity. And that is what happens when you become a Christian. Not just forgiven, but now adopted. Not just wiped clean, but now recreated. Something of a new life, a new person is birthed. And that is why baptism is so powerful. Because you pass through waters, and in the water, it's like things are dying. They've already died, but symbolically, we're remembering things were died. And now, new life, new openings, new way through, out of my old sinful life. He doesn't have a hold on me anymore, because I've crossed over, and I belong to another one. I don't belong to you anymore. So I don't have to do what you say anymore. I'm freed from your power. That's really good news. It's like, it's just amazingly good news. That's why we sing songs. That's why we get together. We kind of go, God, is this real? This is real amazing. Grace. It's a true Jesus only. So, on the day, it says, I close, when your old slave master comes calling for you to try and drag you back, back into fear, back into sinful patterns, what do you do? What do we do, everybody? What do we do tomorrow? Stand firm. Stand. That spiritual warfare in the New Testament is basically stands firm. Stand on the ground you have. Don't give in. Don't move. Watch. Remember what he does. When the accusation comes, you come into worship, you don't deserve to be here. What do you say? You say, you're right, I don't deserve to be here. You say to the enemy, I don't deserve, but I am allowed to be here because there's another one who stood in the gap for me, who took my place, who took my punishment, which means there is now no condemnation. Therefore, I can come. When you feel tempted to slip back into old sinful patterns of behavior, you remember, this is what you do, you remember what Egypt was really like. And you trump all that sin offers you with the promise, no, 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 what God offers me is so much better than my old life. When fear comes to enslave you, saying you can't really trust God, he's not going to be true to his word, you know what you do? You go, do you know what? No, that's not true. 
Because I have a deliverer who got me out of slavery through judgment, out of an incredibly impossible situation. And if if he was prepared to deliver me at his own cost to get me out, surely he will give me all things. You pray back Romans 8. He will work things, all things together for the good of those who love him. And when the accuser comes and says, you're never going to make it as a Christian. You're pretty useless. You never stick at anything. Why don't you go back to your sinful life? Because you were really good at that stuff. What you say is, do you know what? I'm not going to go back. Because I'm not that person anymore. And I'm not that person anymore, not not because I'm just trying to tell myself, but because he says I'm a new person, a new creation. I have a new identity. I don't belong to you anymore. I don't have to do what you say. I'm a child. I'm adopted. Something as new has been birthed in me. And you can pray, Philippians 1, confidently. I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion. Amen? Let's stand together.